missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hey. Tonight, we're talking about animal antics, and we're navigating the foggy seas of COVID brain. In the second half, we have my conversation with anatomist and artist Dr. Yasmin Metzel from McMaster University. But first, the news. So with this first story, I don't know how scientific we're going to be with the headlines, but I found a group of attention-grabbing headlines that were just way too weird to pass up. So let's just speed round these and uh, see what we think. So starting off, giant land snails are invading Florida. A pair of macaws have broken out of the Indianapolis Zoo, and there are two separate stories of alligators on the loose in Wisconsin. Uh, so, you know, the snails, that's just Florida being Florida, but I, I'm starting to wonder if the other two stories have any intervention from my dear co-hosts and maybe they can explain themselves. Of course, they, there's going to be an alligator use, loose in Kenosha. No one likes Kenosha. It's basically <laughs> Illinois. That's, that's the only note I have on that story. <laughs> Okay, full disclosure, I grew up in Racine, so I feel like I can totally make fun of Kenosha because I'm sure they make fun of Racine. So Hey, but Racine won the uh the women's world series, right? <laughs> in uh League of Their Own. Yep. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Kit Harrington. Saying. That's right. Well done. Yeah. Well great done. Movie. Yeah. Dottie dropped well. that ball intentionally, just so we're clear. No. Oh, no, 100%. that takes away from that takes away from Kit's spunk. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Kit was spunky. <laughs> period. Full stop. That's true. But Daddy dropped the ball. Girl. Yeah, it's also true. <laughs> I've been out of the country for a week. I have nothing to do with these macaws. Just to be clear, <laughs> nothing to do with them. So the story here is that uh, a couple of macaws have wandered too far away from the zoo in Indianapolis. And why is that notable? It's notable because Indianapolis allows their birds to just free range around the area they're not in enclosures that's pretty cool except that sometimes those birds take off and so you know a couple of macaws have been missing for a while i think they've been located Mm -hmm. now though Mm -hmm. so so we're okay and again i was still out of the country when they were located Uh uh-huh so my alibi is still intact yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what the quote from the uh, the lead bird zookeeper at Indianapolis Zoo. I think his name's Matthew McConaughey, and it was something about they just keep living. But yeah, it's good to see that you have a laissez-faire attitude with your animals at the Indianapolis Zoo. Yeah, you know, this is a pretty laid-back area here in Indiana, so. Sure. I mean, they must feed them well if they keep staying there. I guess it was this one, a case where they didn't come back. It took them a while. Yeah, I guess I I didn't realize that macaws were uh, fans of fried pork tenderloin sandwiches. You have those in abundance here in Indiana. Um, And so, you know, you just keep giving them tenderloins and they're they're happy. So I used to live in Southern California and there's, do you all, have you used the Nextdoor app? I've barely been on it. Oh, I love to watch Nextdoor just right. because it is vicious and it's really vicious for like, so you know, 65 year olds. It's great. It's so right? funny. But it was great in Southern California because people, if you had more than like a quarter acre, you would have like 
animals that would be roaming. So one day on our Nextdoor app, someone had a picture of a pig with an apple, and they're like, this pig, I don't know, it wandered up to my door crying. It's it's missing its home. Who lost a pig? And then someone's like, oh my gosh, that's my daughter's pig named Olivia. Can I come pick it up? And there were so many instances of like random animals on the lamb, and I loved it. Were there any lambs? No. Actually, there were alpaca that lived like down the street from us. <laughs> <laughs> and peacocks next door. <laughs> when I moved to Indiana, I moved into an area right across from a llama farm. So I get it. Oh, um, yeah. I get that. Now, that said, I grew up in Kansas City. Right. And that is, uh, you know, home to the world's best yeah. barbecue. I don't care what anybody from Texas or Memphis or the Carolina says. Yeah. Um, they're wrong. <laughs> and if a pig showed up at my door with an apple <gasps> in its mouth... Oh, no. I have a feeling <laughs> things would be very different, no. right? Or any of my neighbors, no. right? Because that's literally serving it up on a platter. Oh, no, you brought it, your own apple? No, Thank you. it was crying. It was hungry. It found it found an apple. Hmm. I did. I did. This is a true story. I was at a bar in Hillcrest, and there's a lemur there. Someone brought a lemur mm. to a bar, which is not I have a lot it's of not legal. That you won't have the answer. That to. is not legal. This person claimed was they were from the lemur rescue, and we're like, nope. <laughs> was that person yep. Coyote Peterson? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, that's right. Callback. Wow, well done. <laughs> these are these are just like fun stories. There's no actual science behind it. I mean, maybe climate change has something to do with these animals being in weird spots. But I feel like this last little bit is a little more depressing and definitely climate change related because it's been reported that the monarch butterfly has officially been listed as an endangered species. And this is something we've been hearing a lot about from a variety of sources uh, that we need to like cool it with the herbicides and pesticides because we're killing the monarch butterflies nesting and food source. Uh and now that's like, yeah, that thing we've been telling you is happening now. So that's a little depressing. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I remember watching uh, the great monarch migration every summer flying over. Was it summer? Yeah, summer, right? As they're migrating yeah. north. Mm -hmm. It's very sad to me to think that that isn't something that, you know, my kids are going to be able to experience the same way or that their kids will get to experience perhaps at all. But the good news is this. There is a... Uh, there is an interesting um, foundation that is trying to do um, some solid work here to fix this problem. They're called the Live Monarch Educational Foundation Farm and National Movement. And their mission is to offer education, involvement, assistance, and acknowledgement of persons directly acting to benefit the monarch butterfly and various native creatures who have suffered a decline in their natural habitats. And what is what is really awesome about this organization is that if you send them a self-addressed stamped envelope they will send you seeds of milkweed that are um, appropriate for where you live so you can plant them and attract monarch butterflies as a place where they can um, feed and it's just that to me that is doing the work that that needs to be done in a way that's different from um, how others sort of attack this problem, right? Scientists don't attack this problem usually with this kind of solution. This is a citizen science appearing 
initiative and it's uh, pretty cool. I love it. I think another thing you should do that I've seen with varying degrees of success because right now it's just kind of isolated pockets is talk to your town and see if you can just do like a three by three foot patch of milkweed and other native pollinating plants because it doesn't need to be this uninterrupted chain of spots from from Canada to Mexico. It just needs to be enough that the monarchs can make it from one little island of plants that they can use to another with uh, within their life cycle. Um, so, you know, even even less, a small pollinator garden at like an elementary school can really do a lot. I've even seen some of my friends help raise monarchs, too. And it's just amazing yeah. watching them because um, they'll document it every day, how they're growing and, and watching them change and go through this transformation is beautiful and releasing them. True. And I think um, what's important is that this is something that's used in elementary schools to teach life cycle, right? Yep. And monarch butterflies are a really good example. So I remember both of my kids in elementary school had raised monarch butterflies and then released them, you know? And so this is something that kids can get behind as well because they're familiar already with the species. Um, I imagine that this is happening all across the country, but I'm it's certainly happening here in Indiana. And if there's one thing we know about Indiana science standards, it's they're not ahead of the curve. They don't lead the nation. So if this is happening here, I imagine it's happening elsewhere. I hate to say it because like losing a lot of species that don't elicit an emotional response is still a bad thing. But maybe having this thing that is in everyone's backyard from their childhood be listed as an endangered species might spur on some action that could do a lot of good for a lot of different less uh, less charismatic species. Jason, I don't want to pick on you, but I think you're the one of the three of us that had COVID. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how the experience of brain fog or just overall fogginess was during that period of your life. Uh, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> That's uh, basically what it comes down to. Well said. Yeah. And of course it happened right while I had a whole bunch of deadlines I needed to meet. So like I had to try to push through to get some things done, but it was hard, uh, hard to focus. And as I was telling Steffi earlier, I'm not sure if that was because I was having a hard time due to some sort of physiological reaction in my brain or because I was so bored all day long that then when I had to like try to focus some energy to get some work done with the minimal energy that I had, I couldn't do it because I had been so bored all day long. I really don't know what the answer is, but I can tell you that um, it was not fun to try to pull through. I mean, I don't wish anybody, I'm very fortunate. I've never had long-term symptoms, at least so far, and I'm hopeful that I won't. But anyone who does and keeps experiencing that, it's got to be hell on earth. And maybe eagle-eared listeners can go back and try to pinpoint the episode that Jason had COVID while recording uh, <laughs> and see if there was a difference. We're not going to tell you. You're going to have to figure yeah. it out for yourselves. And you can submit it. And if you're right, I'll send you a thank you note. Right. I'll tell you this much. Uh, it's going to be hard to figure out because, you know, even even when I had fogginess, like it's really no different. Than oh. I'm still all yeah. over the place <laughs> and uh, I don't say a lot of intelligible things. So, you know, it might not be too difficult. I'm glad they're looking into this. Yeah. Because there's been so many people suffering long term, long COVID symptoms or even like temporary that they need to focus efforts on on helping people and figuring out the cause. And the fact that they're looking at the cause of the COVID brain fog is similar to chemo brain fog. 
That was really interesting to me in this article. It's so impressive to me when scientists make these links and end up like really hammering down on a multitude of things. So let's talk about the actual story here. Uh, it's about kind of just a generalized brain fogginess that they're studying, but they're really focusing on the after effects of long COVID or COVID-19 infection. So we have a team of researchers led by M Michelle Monje from Stanford University and Akiko Iwasaki from uh, Yale University. Um, I, I, it took me a while to remember that name, uh, you know, Yale. It's just something I don't think about so much other than when Dartmouth beats them at football every year. Sick burn. Sick burn. Inter Ivy burn. Yeah, someone had to acknowledge that. That's the elite of the elite right there. So <laughs> yeah, for you know, all two people from those areas who might listen, that was a good one. Yeah. So the thing I really liked about this story is that they were basically doing all of this by mail. Uh, so they would like uh, cultivate the virus, send it to from Yale to Stanford, infect the mice, kill the mice, look at the brain, send it back to Yale. Uh, it was very harrowing, the lengths that they had to go through while remaining within federal requirements to study study this virus line. But uh, what they found is that it is linked to the inflammatory response that a lot of emergency doctors were talking about at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to kind of link the appearance of these inflammatory markers in the spinal cord and around the brain, and then kind of looking at the parts of the brain that could be affected and seeing that these markers were also in the cells or in the hippocampus, which help us helps it. Well, which is like long-term memory. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm right. trying to not throw a lot of jargon into this, but uh, doing great. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing these inflammatory markers in the part of the brain that's related to memory and then also along the parts of these nervous pathways that makes that message quicker. Uh, it's called myelination and some of the cells that kind of maintain this higher speed connection are being damaged by the inflammation. So it's, it's like an elegant way to explain this brain fog, in mice at least. Yeah. Um, First of all, James, you did a really great job of explaining that because there is a lot yeah. of jargon and you avoided almost all of it. And I'm quite impressed. I'm going to put that in my CV. Um, so kudos to you, first of all. Second of all, this is how science works, right? Um, so to me, what was interesting was not um, how the science happened, which was you know back and forth through the mail, because that happens a lot in biomedical science. What was unique to me about this one was that there were certain experiments that they had to do over FaceTime so that everyone yeah. could see it because restrictions in the lab meant that folks from one lab couldn't visit the other lab to do the experiments. And so that was, to me, what was really interesting. I love the fact that they made this connection between what they were studying in chemotherapy symptoms versus you know what people were experiencing uh, with long COVID and mild infection. And to me, this was uh, this is also how biomedical science progresses. I think what's interesting here was that this particular piece of science stuck, right? Stuck to the wall. 
Because what happens when you have an emergency like this is that the National Institutes of Health will put out a call for all sorts of proposals because they get this influx of money from the federal government that is specifically designated for COVID research, right? This happened um, in 2020, 2021. Like, we need to understand this, so we're going to throw, we're going to dump a bunch of money at this um, to see what we can figure out. And everyone who's studying something that they may be able to also relate to COVID will throw their hat in the ring and say, hey, I want to look at this. 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 And little pots of money will be distributed so that people can test these high-risk ideas. And then when something kind of sticks, a principal investigator of a lab can put in a, a bigger grant proposal to try to, to study this in more depth. And this is what has happened here. And to me, this is, this is science working. This is your federal tax dollars doing the work that they're supposed to do. And again, 99% of the studies that uh, were funded here failed, but 1% didn't. And it's that 1% that you can then open up a new avenue of research and try to help people. And to me, that's why we need to keep investing in science, especially biomedical science, but not just biomedical science, all science, because that's how progress happens. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too. Oftentimes, the scientists were siloed in our very specific research. But when you open up calls like this and you reach out to people beyond your fields, that were, that's where you can start seeing similarities. You bring in new mm -hmm. thoughts and you spark new ideas and you get innovation that way. Absolutely. That's what was fascinating is seeing how different people collaborate on this to find these connections to solve these grand issues or these unanswered questions. I totally agree. Um, I thought what was interesting was the way this, uh, this particular story weaved the two different parts of the study together, right? The first mm -hmm. was the um, what's happening generally in the brain and specifically in the hippocampus, but then also what's happening um, with the myelination of these of these nerve cells, right? And mm -hmm. the ability to pad them and coat them and increase the speed with which the signal is conducted. I read that and I thought, wow, this story did a really good job of tying these two, two things together. And in reality, probably what happened is you had one postdoc who was studying this in chemotherapy and said, okay, I'm gonna, try, I'm gonna look at this now in the COVID model because this animal has been sacrificed already. Let me take a look at the and see what happens, right? And somebody else looking at cytokines, right? And, uh, you know, transcription factors and all sorts of stuff that's flo that are floating around in the brain, right? I'm going to look and see what's happening in the chemo model. Can I find that happening in the COVID model? And it just so happened that things were related and that the puzzle pieces fit together really well. But in reality, there may have been two or three other postdocs or graduate students who were working on some other piece of chemotherapy um, symptoms, right, and chemo fog that ended up being unable to sort of uh, join them together because they weren't there, right? There, there's no data there to support uh, similarity with COVID. I think that's a great point that, to make that people don't uh, they don't see, right? Because we all often publish positive results. We're not out there right. talking about all the times that science has failed because we're discovering new things and going down new avenues. So you're going to fail sometimes, but you're going to learn a lot of amazing things. Right. And it's more than sometimes, right? You're going to yeah. fail most times. Yeah. Yep. And that actually is the problem. And that's why we get so much duplication of the failure because we don't publish those negative results because journals don't. This is a longer conversation to have about yeah. journal publishing um, and how that works. But at the end of the day, the story can really be summarized as negative results don't have as much of an impact as 
positive results do in moving things forward, or at least that's what the journals or publishers think, when in reality, those negative results tell you a lot about sort of what can and cannot work. And so they are just as valuable at progressing the science. They're not as attractive to publish. Yeah. I think you can go back and listen to my conversation with Dr. Andre Isaacs, who is a chemist, um, and talked about how much time and material is wasted because trying to duplicate these results from German journals uh, where he will email them and be like, oh, you know, this didn't work. He's like, yeah, we tried that. Well, why didn't you publish it? Why didn't you tell the rest of us that that didn't work and I wouldn't have done this experiment? Uh, And I feel like that's probably a conversation that happens in a lot of different sciences. Yep. You know, now that we've finished making art with our voices, let's move on to my conversation with Dr. Yasmin Medzel, an anatomist and artist who is showing the world the simplicity of complexity. But first, a message from another podcast I think you will enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. With us this evening is Dr. Yasmin Mezel, postdoctoral fellow and adjunct clinical professor at McMaster University, and also, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time this evening, freelance scientific and medical illustrator. Yasmin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me, James. So people who are devoted followers to my Science Night Twitter handle will will know exactly what brought me to this. But I guess I should give you the background. This could be the first time you've ever experienced the Science Night podcast. And welcome if that's the case. But I saw one of the greatest chalkboard illustrations of the muscles of the face I've ever seen in my life. And if you're asking, like, how many of you seen, like, oh, I... I am a connoisseur of chalkboard art, especially anatomy chalkboard art. And it came with a quote that I'm going to read that I I just thought was great. When you are at the point where you bring together what you do with who you are, that is where the magic is. So, Yasmin, I want to talk about magic with you this (laughs) evening. First of all, I I guess we should ask the the initial question is, uh, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, both at the college and with your freelance art. Yeah, absolutely. So as you had mentioned, I'm doing my postdoctoral fellowship um, under the American Association of Anatomy. And what I do throughout this fellowship is I I do some anatomy research. We're looking at cadaveric studies as well as education-based studies. I've had some experience working with education-based studies um, throughout my PhD. So it's quite an exciting intersection between my anatomy knowledge and my art, which I'm happy to get into um, later on. And um, I also uh, teach anatomy to school of rehab students. So physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and speech pathology. And most recently I got into teaching uh, medical students. And just as a side note, I, I find it so interesting to be able to teach so many different demographics of students because because 
you learn so much about their approach to anatomy. And in doing so, you just learn different approaches of teaching, which I just find to be one of the most dynamic things about anatomy, because, you know, it's not the static job. You're constantly learning ways uh, to teach and you're constantly learning the anatomy itself. So that's what I do in terms of um, at the university setting. And on the side or my side hustle, as you should say, I'm a medical illustrator. So the way I got into it is uh, not really traditional, I'll have to say, but essentially what I do is I um, make illustrations and uh, many times um, they'll be commissioned for other researchers, clinicians. In fact, the way I started, it was actually for um, plastic surgeons who wanted to uh, convey my illustrations in their research. Now I've been getting a, a different variety of requests, um, whether it's, you know, purely medical or are mainly out of uh, personal interest. So, yeah, that's what I do. I want to talk about something you mentioned about how uh, you kind of take a dynamic approach to teaching anatomy. Because I always get asked, too, like, oh, don't we already know everything we need to know about anatomy? What's the point of all that? I was like, no, this is like the puzzle that you get to crack when you're trying to teach people about the human body in a way that they understand. Because everyone learns everything differently. But I think especially anatomy, like interacting with your body in a, in a new and instructive way, um, I always find it's really fun to kind of look at the individual learner and figure out like what is the way that is going to make this information sticky what are some of the interesting things that you've kind of had to do to relay this information uh while while you're instructing this is something that i again i constantly find so fascinating when i learned anatomy i've always learned by relying on the way something looks so i drew everything out to understand it um even when learning about function i would for example draw the the muscles and categorize them based on their functions i would draw the osteology the bones and and sort of you know understand their shapes and how that translates into attachments and so on so that's how i learned things that being said you know, there are many other approaches that students use, whether it be mnemonics or kinesthetics, which I didn't necessarily do when I was learning anatomy, right? So for me, when I started teaching anatomy, I couldn't just stand up there and say, well, look at how this bone looks and look at how this, you know, process emerges from this bone. It's not something that is necessarily going to sit with everyone because there are different types of learners in the room. So for me, I felt that I had to sort of wear multiple hats when reviewing my notes to teach anatomy because you're not just going up there to make a presentation about anatomy. That's not what an educator is. You're, you're going there to help the students engage with the content. So you want to speak at their level. You want to speak their language so that they can really make the most out of it. So those were some of the things that I, I did. And, and on top of that, having the experience of teaching different students from different programs, you start to see that even within different specific programs, there's just this way of learning anatomy that really uh, resonates with them more. And so then you try to become even more creative and you try to even make your, your slides a bit more customized mm -hmm. to that type of learner, right? So for example, with the School of Rehab students, you know, they're very, you know, application, hands-on, kinesthetic. So something that I didn't do necessarily at the beginning. So a lot of that was learning how to approach anatomy in that way and and sort of weaving in the clinical aspect which is again another conversation on its own sure. so like you said you're always going to be learning when you're teaching right it's not something that you just 
well, I can present in front of a group of people, so I'm going to be a great educator. No, you you have to be able to listen to you know what it is that the students need and sort of customize the content into a package that they can actually receive. It is such a joy to hear you talk about anatomy education with that much excitement because historically, <laughs> anatomy education... You know, the lectures are a little dry. And by historically, I am talking about like when I was in middle school. We're talking 90s, uh, late 80s. So so nothing since the new batch of, of AAA educators have come on the scene. We're, we're doing great now. Yes, absolutely. Um, going back to that initial tweet of that muscles of the face chalkboard art, you know, that is always my favorite time of the year when they're learning the musculature of the face because you're just kind of walking through random libraries and study spaces and you can see them looking at the images and moving their faces and all of these weird, <laughs> <laughs> all of these, these weird ways and kind of tilting their head as they're learning about the sternocleidomastoid or smiling as they learn about the muscles of facial expression or not smiling, depending <laughs> on uh, how well it's sticking. But, you know, maybe that's... That's why that image kind of drew me in. And I got to ask, was that image created for the sake of your portfolio or is that actually for instruction? I actually did this after I had taught a session and the session was not even related to myology of the face. Actually, we, we had just taught a, uh, a neurology session and I when I draw on the chalk, many of my drawings in the past have primarily been upper limb, lower limb, back. So confession, I haven't really drawn the myology of the face as often um, as I wanted to. And so after that session that I had with neuro, I, I had some time on my hands and I really wanted to make a drawing that was something a little bit out of my comfort zone. And so I, I chose the myology of the face because like I said, I don't draw it very often. Mm -hmm. And I and I left it there because I knew that the one of the other instructors that week was going to be teaching myology of the face. So I figured, okay, well, I think it will be helpful to, to have it up there and the students can go up and probably label things because that's one of the things that I like to do. I like to draw things out on the chalkboard mm -hmm. and I'll put multiple labels or leads so that the students themselves fill it in. And so I thought, okay, so on one hand, I am, you know, growing artistically. And at the same time, um, I can use this drawing for other students that are actually going through the material for that week. That's great. Some nice cross pollination. I also love that you signed it at the bottom too. <laughs> it was like, you know, I, I know this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, I was actually debating, like, should I sign it? You know, I, I'm actually proud that I drew the face today. So, you know, what? I am going to sign it. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if it were me, I would have signed it way bigger. I would have <laughs> the chalkboard would have taken my signature. Uh <laughs> email address <laughs> yeah exactly exactly you know uh my my patreon my my cash <laughs> app all of the things in which you can support me <laughs> i want to now move on to your illustration and the way that you got into medical illustration scientific illustration or just art in general is that something that has been a lifelong passion or is that something that has kind of developed along the way so I'll chat about the art and then I'll chat about the medical illustration. Yeah. The, my, my journey with them are very different. I grew up loving art. Uh, I've always liked to draw as a kid and my uh, my mother really picked up on that very quickly. Um, and so she uh, she signed me up for a lot of extracurriculars um, and that allowed me to continue drawing and 
really seeing it as something pivotal in my life. And so, you know, growing up, I always saw myself more artistically inclined. And I actually remember thinking to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be an art director. That's what I want to do. That's what, what I want to be. Um, and so growing up, I grew um, in Kuwait, so a small country in the Middle East. In, in my surroundings, you know, a lot of the careers were primarily scientific careers, right? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know people who were well-established artists and art was seen more so as a hobby. Um, and so even though I grew up in a household that very much encouraged the continuation of practicing my hobby, I just saw a disconnect between me becoming an artist in, the, in my future. But at the same time, I also had this, you know, blossoming interest in science. I, I was really excited about science. I loved doing scientific projects. And I loved really, again, going out of my comfort zone with projects too. Every year would be completely different. So I sort of kept art as a hobby at that point. So this was around high school. I kept it as a hobby and I focused on, okay, I think I'm going to head towards the trajectory of, you know, something medical for my future. So that was me and art. And by the time I got into, you know, the deep into my undergraduate studies, I had this really interesting phase in my life where I almost put art to the side, unfortunately. And I focused so much on just my work because even though I was doing, you know, my degree in, in Canada at this point, uh, I was at Brock University doing health sciences, I still saw a disconnect. I didn't see where my hobby fits into my um, educational career. But uh, it wasn't until I had gotten into my PhD, you know, I was appointed to be a teaching assistant for the School of Rehab. That's actually how my journey with them first started. And I remember when I would prepare for my notes, rather than writing things down, I would start drawing what it was that I was teaching the next day. And to me, this was kind of an epiphany because I have to tell you, it had been a while since I, I drew in that you know, in that uh, level of engagement. I found it really interesting that it was anatomy that sort of, you know, drew back mm -hmm. my, my artistic interests and my artistic talents. And so now, how did I become a medical illustrator? When I started drawing, you know, a lot of these illustrations, I would keep them in my lab book. Going in the lab, you sort of keep your lab book open to go ahead and do make your reagents or make your experiments. And my lab peers would, you know, see my sketches and, and they would ask me, what are you doing in a lab? Why are you here? Um, you know, these are really good illustrations. Even my supervisor at that point, he was kind of shocked to see my drawings. And from that point, working in grad school, many of your peers have PIs who are clinicians, who are working on manuscripts, who are doing studies that need illustrators. <laughs> um, and so it was really, my start was word of mouth. One of my colleagues, uh, Jessica Murphy, she was working with um, a clinician who was looking for an illustrator. And she approached me and said, we're looking for someone to illustrate the hands. Can you do it? And for me, the imposter syndrome was way up high, sure. like going over the roof. I said, I, I'm not an illustrator. I draw. And she said, well, you can draw, right? I said, yes. You know the anatomy, right? Yes. You're willing to take money, right? Like, well, yes. Then why don't you do it? And um, that's how I started. So I kind of started that way. And um, I got to know the clinicians um, around Master Health Sciences. And then from there, they would also talk to another. That's kind of how I got my workout. And there was a huge learning curve because now I had to learn what is it to be a medical illustrator. 
I want to go back to something you talked about is uh, putting your art to the side because you felt that there was a disconnect between what you were doing now and, and the art that you were producing. Was that something that was told to you or just kind of something that you internalized? It wasn't something that was explicitly told to me, mm -hmm. but it was something that I perceived in sure, all sure. of the components in my environment. It was something that I had perceived in the way I was taught medical sciences um, and, and at multiple levels too. So if we were to talk about the level of how, for example, the science was presented, um, it was purely medically conveyed. Even the individuals who I've, you know, had the, the privilege of meeting throughout my undergrad, I didn't really get to see another side to them throughout my undergrad. A lot of it was pr primarily focused on learning the physiology or you're all in health sciences because you obviously want to become medical doctors, right? Th there's these assumptions that are sort of put onto us as students. And I think those assumptions then become our assumptions. Sure. All right. Um, so you're like double assumptions. Um, and so I think that sort of carried on with me and when I realized that I was in an environment where I am being conditioned to become a medical professional, then how does art fit into what I want to do? At that time, even when I thought about becoming a family doctor, for example, I thought about how, for example, medical doctors interact with their patients. I thought about the amazing work that they do to, to help with diagnosis and treatment, but I didn't see that level of creativity. And I, and I think that's a, a shortcoming on my end because creativity can mean different things, right? But when you're someone who's so used to doing it artistically, sometimes you kind of have a very specific definition of what it looks like. So yeah, I think um, to answer your question, James, I think it was very much internalized. And I think there are assumptions coming from multiple ends that made me think, I didn't have a place to practice this hobby in a professional setting. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself for for kind of thinking that way because it is something that is, or at least historically has been conveyed. You know, we have the science over here and it is this thing in which we use our voice and we use our published manuscript to pad our CV. And that is the way we do science. And occasionally we'll mix stuff together, but any, any, you know, and then there is the art side, which is something you should be kind of discouraged from because mm -hmm. we, we hear that story quite a lot in the thing and the people that we talk to for this podcast. Uh, one of the things I want to do is tell people, stop it. Don't do that. Uh, don't like tell it. kids. Don't tell kids they can't do art yeah. or and science. I mean, definitely don't to tell kids they can't do art, but don't tell the science kids they can't do art because it's almost like they they have this filter that doesn't show all of the art that is in just the average high school or college science book. There is not a textbook out there that doesn't have all kinds of illustrations and diagrams and things that do take a level of artistic ability to do. And it's like, where do you think those come from? <laughs> you know what, James, to add on to that, I, just, I think that it's very contrary to how we first learn science in the, to, in the first place. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you probably relate back to, you know, elementary school as well, a lot of it was, okay, so now we're going to learn about trees and we're going to use these colors to, to draw like maple leaves or pine leaves. And you're, you were introduced to science through a mode of art and creativity. And then at one point, all right, forget everything you know yeah. about art <laughs> we're only going to focus on the science and i it's sad because 
I think, you know, as children, they have such huge potential to be able to do and combine the things that they find interesting. But uh, the way that we work as a society, at least at that time, because at this point, I, I do see change. I do see change now. But at least you know, growing up, I felt that there was that disconnect. Scientists looked very different. Artists looked very different. The moment someone mentions, you know, what does a scientist looks, look like to you in your mind, you have this very specific image. And then same thing with what an artist would look like, right? I guess also I'm realizing now, like, when I'm saying that we have this disconnect from art, I think we also just have a disconnect from creativity in the sciences, because there's a lot of ways that you can convey a scientific message. And when I'm when I'm saying art, I am meaning like representations on, on paper, some kind of illustration of some kind, or a drawing, or a painting, or digital art. But there is music, there is dance, there is all kinds of other ways to interpret these complex and abstract ideas because when we're talking about sciences we're talking about ways to explain an abstract concept and in a world where we need to get real good at science communication real quick we should be looking at all the tools in our toolbox to do that and make it relate to people I agree. I think I think now our strong fascination in science communication and knowledge translation has become a great awakening mm -hmm. that we are missing some tools in the back and that we need to, you know, reconnect in order to actually make science more effective. And this is actually a very interesting intersection that I had during my PhD that you know, during my PhD it was when I was getting all these commissions to make medical illustrations and Throughout that process, I had an epiphany of my own. I thought, if I'm using my skill to convey the science of others, why can't I do the same for my own work? Mm -hmm. And so I was very fortunate to work with a supervisor, Brian Timmons, who was a huge advocate of knowledge translation. And I had approached him and I told him, look, you know, my research is in pediatric science. And essentially, we're looking at muscle and bone health and how exercise is good for that. Why can't I actually push the limits a little bit with my third chapter and create a knowledge translation video using my my artistic abilities and um, of course there was some discussion you know how are we going to make this measurable um, will this you know work in the line with the traditional thesis and you know we found that yes it, it does um, there is going to be a bit of creativity on our end to convince others that it is and I went with it and throughout that chapter of my PhD that is when I really felt the meaning of that tweet that I had made on Twitter, that when you combine who you are, what you do, that is where you can actually do something that's different. And that's something that actually feels like your true calling almost, because I was really happy that I was able to use my scientific findings, draw them out, create an animation video. By the way, I know nothing about creating animation. So this is something that I had to learn for my PhD. How do you make things move? And what is the GIF? And all these things. I learned to do them throughout my PhD. And I was able to make this video that later on received recognition through the Canadian Institute of Research here in Canada. And so I was quite proud of this achievement, not just because of the impact that it left, but because it was the part of my PhD where I felt like I had put in all of me into my work. I spend a lot of time just kind of looking for things to talk about on the podcast on Twitter. And uh, man, like PhD life and t PhD burnout is such a real thing. And I'm wondering if your academic advisor allowing you to kind of 
use all of the aspects of your your like authentic self uh, helped a little bit in that. Can you talk about that at all? Like the experience of having the like non-traditional thesis approach did that kind of reignite anything in you during that process uh being have, having that door open to you absolutely so it was a challenge at the beginning because mm-hmm. you know i'm thinking to myself i have to convince my supervisor to allow me to draw for my right. thesis how is this gonna look because <laughs> <laughs> it can be interpreted in so many different ways right like are you looking for an easy way out i don't understand but I had to do my research. I had to really understand what the vision was. I had to make sure that it was filling in a gap. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. based on what I had been learning about knowledge translation and science communication, I felt that it truly was filling in the gap. And so when I had gone in to um, see my supervisor, I prepared myself almost for a mini thesis defense, you know? (laughs) So this is what I'm thinking. And this is why I think we should do it. And at the beginning, he challenged me because, you know, that's the way he is. He was challenging me with his questions. Um, and just to make sure that, do, do you know what you're doing and, and why is it that you're doing this? And when I got the green light, then there was the other challenge. Okay, I got the green light to do something that I don't know anyone in my circle has done. So now I have to create that circle, find people that will help me do this. Am I willing to put in all those hours and and time and the risk of may, maybe delaying graduating mm-hmm, for this? Mm-hmm. Yes. At the core of me, I felt that, yes, this was truly worth it because I wanted my PhD to be something that spoke to others, but it also spoke to me so that when I finished my PhD, I felt that this was all of me in my project. So if I would be speaking to students who are considering these non-traditional approaches, I think that one of the um, considerations I would lay out there is really think about how your vision is is fulfilling the the questions that you want to address or how you can rationalize how this particular skill set is going to make your PhD unique. And if you can't find those answers, then put in the work to make it happen. And Mm -hmm. it's going to be hard because you're doing something that's a little outside the box. And there will be times where you'll feel like, what am I doing? I should probably <laughs> just go back and do a traditional experiment. But if you just keep going and you continue working on the project, you will learn so much in the, along the way. And because of my, my experience in doing this, I have been able to talk to people from multiple backgrounds that I didn't think I'd talk to. Knowledge translation, um, uh, childhood education, um, science communication. I, I never th- would have thought, starting off my PhD, that I get to get engaged with all these different backgrounds. So it's really nice. Yeah. No, that is like amazing advice for students and non-students of all levels to hear. Because what I'm really hearing is that you should really have these like frank conversations to yourself about the value that you can bring to things. And what that does is, you know, you're you're thinking about like no no i i do have this value that i can bring to these rooms and i'm not going to say that this is going to be a cure all for imposter syndrome because no, no. there isn't one it's still thriving don't worry yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no 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 i've i've been in my position i'm going on year 10 and i feel like any day now they're going to be like what are we doing <laughs> <laughs> but i i wonder if building yourself up from a very early level in oh i don't Absolutely. know maybe well i mean yeah. i 
I can vouch from my experience that I feel like it does actually. Okay. Um, so even right now at my postdoctoral fellowship, I'm, I've had the honor of working with Dr. Bruce Wayman, um, who's the director of anatomy at McMaster. And that's how we approach the conversation to begin with, that I, uh, I come from an interdisciplinary background and that um, there is the potential to do things that are unique to this background and things that will help with filling in the gaps in, in the research. So it, like you said, James, it does give you that level of confidence to speak to your strengths um, as opposed to sort of just going with whatever project is handed to you, because mm -hmm. I think that's really important, right? On one hand, yes, you do want to be able to fulfill the, the needs and the gaps of the program that you're going into, but at the same time, you shouldn't ignore how your own skill sets might be addressing a gap that the program is not necessarily aware that they have, sure, or yeah. you know how you might be able to help advance that forward. So it's a great way to condition yourself, I think, to whatever future that you're, you, you see for yourself. Talking about interdisciplinary approaches to things, which is something that we are now realizing that we should have been doing all along, interdisciplinary, uh, diverse opinions, diverse voices, all of these things that we're trying, uh, specifically AAA is, is trying to like affect head on. And I'm sure other professional associations are too. I just am not a member of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is kind of expanding the voices that are in these rooms that are looking at these problems because you're absolutely right. The more voices, the more people, the more eyes with different backgrounds that are looking at a large problem, potentially the more solutions that we come up with that. And also, you know, the less time we just stagnate and become entrenched and mm -hmm. go back to the way we used to think in academia too so i absolutely agree with everything you just said that's not really a question i'm just telling you you're doing you're doing it right <laughs> thank you you know what <laughs> collaboration is a wonderful thing right absolutely. it keeps it keeps projects going it doesn't let you stay up all night at least i think sometimes um <laughs> and i think that the, the the main the really important point here is just bringing in more people because everyone's going to see something that you don't see and so in in having all these different voices these different set of eyes you might just come up with something that's just much more fulfilling than what you had originally thought about i wrote down a bunch of these kind of pull quotes from from your website as i was doing my research because i do a lot of research people <laughs> this is this is a full-time job uh, please buy please buy our merch anyway uh, <laughs> One of the things that jumped out to me from the page, and it goes along with the things that you're saying, is that you want to convey the simplicity of complexity. And it seems like your entire career is all wound up into this, this one statement. You're doing all of these things in the background. It's like the metaphor of the duck, where they're just gliding across the water, but really there's a lot happening yeah, below the surface. I love it. <laughs> So this idea of conveying the simplicity of complexity, I think you are you are illustrating that very well with the work you're doing and your approach to it. Thank you so much. Before I, I release you back into the wild, I want to ask you a few kind of more fun, uh, less career-based questions. First, you know, you do a lot of art for work and for your freelance things, but are you able to still do art for yourself to convey that creativity without linking it to the thing that you do day to day? Yes and no. 
<laughs> why is it yes and no? I do create art outside of work, but I love anatomy that it's mm -hmm. always going to be an anatomical arts. Sure. I just love illustrating arts. Um, but one thing that I like to do for, you know, just the level of my own interest is exploring different mediums that I that I wouldn't necessarily do in a work setting. So, for example, I've always loved drawing with ballpoint pen. Um, it's just it's my favorite medium to play with. And I didn't necessarily um, have the same amount of experience with like charcoal or pencil. And so this is something that I'm now playing around with, playing with charcoal and and it's really fun because one of the reasons why I love drawing so much is because it's such a very subtle and calm way to show you what you are capable of. Sure. And it's it's really it's so sneaky the way it happens too. You'll you'll draw a couple of strokes and then you look back and you think, huh, okay. And then you keep doing it and and it just I don't know. I, I just it's it's a it's a nice uh, therapeutic exercise and you get to learn different things at the same time. So so yes. Yes, I do art for my own personal interest, but uh, anatomy is usually what it ends up being. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said about that, though. You you can you can still create art that is based on what you do for work. But if you're approaching it in a different way, you're still kind of engaging those other parts of your brain in new and interesting ways that I would absolutely assume is is a de-stressor because you're not fully falling into work mode and and having all of those instincts engaged too. So yeah, I I I I can absolutely see where that would be therapeutic. I want to thank you for all the great pieces of advice that you have shared with our audience and and kind of sharing a little bit of your story with us. The last thing I want to ask you is how can we follow you and how can we keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I am active on Instagram and Twitter. Not as active, I'll I will admit. You know, I kudos to people that are constantly tweeting and right, yeah. Instagram. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot keep up with that. But you know, to anyone like that that's listening, honestly, I appreciate the work that you do so that we can stay connected. But I am active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handle uh, for both of them is essentially my initials and then anatomy. So YM anatomy. And I'm more than happy to connect with you. And um, even if you want to, to chat, I'm happy to send out a message. Yeah, I think those are those are two easy and accessible ways uh, that people can reach out. Thank you so much for talking to me, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. You have come to the end of another episode, but we got a lot of fun stuff coming your way, including if you are going to Gen Con tomorrow, I guess, if this is the, if you're listening to this on the Wednesday uh, release date and there's still tickets available because they're going real fast. There's only like 20 left right now. Uh, we're going to be talking about science fiction at the panel presented by Indiana Sciences. So if you're yeah, this is really threading the needle, but if you're going to Gen Con already and there are tickets available and you don't have any and get some and want to see it, why not do it? And, you know, also, like, check our stream. Maybe we'll throw some of it up on this, too, if you weren't able to do it, because I'm telling you, literally the day before this is happening. Anyway, there's other fun things coming because we're going to be all in the same city for, like, the first time ever. So who knows? We'll probably have a special episode coming out about this. This is all a roundabout way to say follow our social media so you find out about all the stuff that's happening. You can follow me at James underscore read three. 
Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipping. And Jason, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. You can follow the podcast at Science Night One. Check out our website, SciNight.com, for previous episodes, links to the articles we talk about and the scientists we talk to, upcoming events, and of course, our merch. Everything you need to know is in one place, and that place is SciNight.com. We will be back in two weeks with another regular episode, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. All right. Thanks Welcome back to an. Oh, oh, sorry, James. Blah. Yeah. Oh. I'm just leaning against my pop filter in shame. <laughs>